Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Remember that the World of Warbirds Facebook page is the best place to see the images of what I'll be talking about today. This is an extension of the previous episode on the P-39 Aracobra, so if you haven't listened to that one yet, you should check it out first. Also, I'd like to thank listener Matthew, down under, Miro in Slovakia, and the folks at Fighter Flights in New Zealand for their feedback. Listener feedback is always welcome, good or bad, and I'll try to incorporate your ideas and suggestions into future episodes. Even pointing out my errors helps us all learn. Well, let's get into this one. If you recall, the P-39 Aracobra fighter had been considered as disappointing for many of the world's air forces, including its home country of the United States. The chief difficulty was the lack of a turbocharger, which had been removed in order to clean up drag on the airframe and hopefully increase speed. This had worked somewhat, but had destroyed any possibility that the Aracobra could be used for high-altitude work. On a side note, I am working on a mini-episode on turbochargers and superchargers. I mean, they sound super cool, but what exactly are they? You can look for that coming down the pipe. So, after being mostly rejected by the U.S. Air Forces, Bell had tried selling their fighter to the U.K., who had been initially desperate enough during the Battle of Britain to give them a shot, but not desperate enough to keep them once they arrived. Honestly, for the most part, the Aracobra just didn't have what the Western Allies needed once they went on the offensive, namely high-altitude ceiling, performance at altitude, and range to sally out from bases in the UK and hit targets in Germany and occupied Europe. However, the P-39 was highly appreciated by the Russians. Its disadvantages just didn't matter over the Eastern Front, where most of the fighting was below 15,000 feet, and as the Russians were fighting over their own territory and could do many short-range attacks in one day, the range problem was nullified too. The Russians loved the P-39's firepower, quality radios, and rate of roll. They even had a nickname for the P-39, the Kobrushka or Little Cobra. They liked the price too, which was basically free via Lend-Lease. As the P-39 had been considered disappointing, in 1941, there was a desire by Bell to try to rectify the problems of the P-39, and the results of these efforts was the P-63 King Cobra. Russia, as the main recipient of the P-39, was very interested in this project and provided significant input and even sent a pilot and an aviation engineer to the Bell plant in Niagara Falls, New York, in order to help develop this aircraft. Although it would seem to make sense in a very practical way, it seems remarkable that this collaborative effort occurred, considering the inherent distrust between these two allies. The distrust was, of course, justified. One agreement that was probably broken was that the new P-63 was to only be used by the Russians against the Japanese, when they eventually declared war against that nation. Although the Soviets said that no P-63s were used against the Luftwaffe, there is considerable evidence that they did. From the Russians' experience operating the P-39, they were able to suggest many improvements to the King Cobra, 
including changes that would improve the center of gravity of the aircraft and improve its spin characteristics. They also asked for more pilot armor, more hard points, and extra fuel tanks. These were on top of the already made changes that made the King Cobra better, including a new airfoil, a four-bladed prop, and a second automatic supercharger that would kick in at higher altitudes. One P-63 prototype was even fitted with a Packard V-1650, which was the US-built version of the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine. However, the use of this engine was rejected due to its scarcity and its need for building the P-51 Mustang. Eventually, 3,303 P-63 King Cobras were built, the vast majority of them going to the Soviet Union, who continued to fly them until 1953. There are several surviving P-63s on display around the world, including two in Russia, at the Russian Air Force Museum and Museum of the Great Patriotic War, both in Moscow. However, under the category of truth is stranger than fiction is the story of the pinball program, which used the P-63 King Cobra. During the war, a tremendous number of aerial gunners needed to be trained to man the guns of the fleets of heavy and medium bombers going over to do their thing. Although it may initially seem easy to be an air gunner, I mean, you just point your gun at the enemy and blast away, right? It's actually very difficult to hit a moving target from a moving platform with a machine gun that is also bouncing around with its own firing motion. On a personal note, I was a qualified machine gunner when I did my time with the Black Watch, Royal Highland Regiment of Canada, and it was hard enough to hit targets when the gun was set on terra firma, mounted on a tri or bipod. I can't imagine trying to hit a high-speed fighter from the turret or door of a bomber bouncing around in rough air. Indeed, it was hard to train these gunners, many times from scratch, from men who may have had little to no experience with shooting before. Many techniques were used in the gunnery training schools, such as starting with shotguns and clay pigeons, and guns mounted on the back of moving platforms or trucks. They could shoot at banners pulled behind tug airplanes. Sophisticated gun cameras and projection screen trainers were also developed to simulate fire at attacking fighters from the actual gun positions of medium and heavy bombers. But the main problem was that the student gunner had no idea how he was doing until the film was processed after the flight. This was not an effective way to learn. But prior to computerized simulations, this was the best that could be done, right? Major Cameron Fairchild, who was in charge of coming up with devices for gunnery training, had another idea. He thought it would provide the best training if student gunners could somehow shoot real bullets at real airplanes and get immediate feedback about how they were doing. Something like today's paintball game. Of course, you had to somehow be able to do that without destroying the target aircraft and killing the friendly target pilot. So he asked two professors from Duke University, Paul Gross and Marcus Hobbs, to invent a non-lethal bullet perhaps made of glass, that would break apart and splinter when it hit a solid target. This was to be known as a frangible bullet. I do wonder what those proposal meetings looked and sounded like. So, you want to shoot at real planes, flown by real American pilots with real, I'm sorry, 
frangible bullets that won't kill him or shoot down the plane, really. But somehow Major Fairchild convinced the professors to get on board. He was not so lucky with the U.S. Army's Ordnance Department, which was in charge of the development of all weapons and ammunition. They stated that any bullet that was truly frangible and non-lethal, fired from normal machine guns, would not have the same ballistic characteristics as real bullets. This difference would make the whole training scheme useless. Ordnance also figured that the target aircraft would, would need so much special armor and other protections so as to make the whole project unpractical. But Major Fairchild got the go-ahead. But the project was given a low priority and limited funding. However, he managed to get the support of the Bakelite Corporation, which was the manufacturer of, yeah, you guessed it, Bakelite, an early type of plastic. With the support of this company and Duke University, Professors Gross and Hobbs developed a 30 caliber bullet made of powdered lead and Bakelite that could be fired from a minimally modified machine gun. The bullet could be fired at aluminum panels at ranges as close as 30 to 40 feet without damage. In early 1944, this frangible bullet entered production under the designation T-44. Now, all that was needed was to find a single-seat fighter that could simulate a German Messerschmitt or Fuckerwolf fighter for the student gunners to shoot at. The U.S. Army Air Forces said, Hey, take a few of those Bell P-63 King Cobras. We don't want them anyway. So, in mid-1944, Bell took five P-63As out of the production line and heavily modified them for what was now known as the pinball program. All armament was removed and all of the forward aluminum was replaced with much thicker armored panels. The windscreen and side windows were replaced with armored glass. Over 100 microphone sensors were installed behind the armored panels and wired to indicate hits on a counter in the cockpit. A bright red light replaced the muzzle in the propeller spinner where the cannon would normally be and would flash each time the plane was hit. These heavily modified King Cobras were known as RP-63As the R meaning that they were restricted from use in combat. As the program was a success, 95 RP-63As were ordered, followed by 200 more in early 1945. As more pinball aircraft and sufficient frangible ammunition became available, the program was expanded to all seven of the USAAF's gunnery schools. There were teething problems, of course. As had been predicted by the Ordnance Department, gun sights had to be adjusted for the lower velocity and differing trajectory of the frangible bullets. The unorthodox recipe of lead and plastic bullets caused more gun jams. More dangerous of all was that sometimes a real round of ammunition would get mixed in with the practice rounds. Oops. So, who flew these pinball king gobras? It was a mix of brand new 19 or 20 year old pilots on their first assignments and others were combat veterans returning from tours in Italy or England. And what was it like to fly the pinball King Cobras? Although the Allison engine had plenty of horsepower, all the armor made the aircraft quite heavy and a challenge to fly. One of the pinball pilots, Horace 
Ashenfelter, a newly commissioned officer pilot who flew out of Tyndale Army Airfield near Panama City, Florida, said, It was not as maneuverable as a regular P-63, but it was smoother. On the downside, you could get a little bit of a high-speed stall if you maneuvered it too abruptly, and then you had a real problem. And what was it like to be shot at by these frangible bullets? The first problem for the pinball pilots was simply psychological. For both the newbies and the vets, initially, there was the fear that they were setting themselves up in these brightly orange-painted aircraft to be deliberately shot at. Perhaps it was worse for the vets. They had already experienced the fear and stress of combat and were now having to overcome all their instincts to set themselves up to be blasted at by plane loads of 12 student gunners with 2,000 rounds each. However, the pilots soon learned that these simulated pinball attacks were really not that much of a big deal and were actually fun. They'd climb up several thousand feet higher than the B-17s or B-24s and swoop in, replicating the attacks of the ME-109s in Europe, and the gunners would open up. Surprisingly enough, often the pinball pilots didn't even feel the hits. They would only know that their airframe was being struck by the sensors that registered hits on a counter in the cockpit. They would then radio these results to the shooting aircraft. However, things could be different if the trigger-happy gunners didn't stop shooting once the pinball RP-63s broke off their attack and exposed their soft, unarmored bits. At that point, even the modified bullets would punch through the empennage, rudder, horizontal stabilizers. The ground crews would patch up the holes with cloth and glue and send the pinballs off to fly again. It was another story if the student gunner cowboys hit the wing root ducts that supplied air to the engine's cooling system. Damage in this area would mean that the 1800 horsepower engine would very quickly overheat, necessitating a choice between bailing out or putting the heavy fighter down for a dead stick landing. With the end of World War II, most of the 300 pinball RP-63s were put into mothballs, and soon enough, human-aimed aerial gunners were replaced by radar-aimed guns, which ended the entire program. I have not been able to find out what happened to Major Fairchild after the war, and if anyone knows, please send that information my way. Also, if you have any suggestions for new topics or aircraft to cover, I'd love to hear them. I'd like to thank James Dunaway for his article, Just Shoot Me!, which was in the November 2010 issue of Air and Space magazine. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.